0: Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil and this is
1: Emily-Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Noreen, how was your week? Not too bad. The dizziness has persisted. Did you have the dizziness from the beginning? Or is that something that's come on more in the last couple of months?
0: No, I I had the dizziness in the beginning. I remember in January, February, going for walks and just feeling a bit off balance. Oh, yeah, I remember. Do you remember, and just that weird kind of not quite about to fall over, but just not quite right, and that went away over the summer and has come back since I had my booster. Mm. And the bad cardiac symptoms have gone... But the dizziness has remained where it's not persistent all day, but there are times during the day when I feel really like I might
1: fall over. And it's not just uh, kind of pots when you stand up or uh, when you change position. It can just happen at any time. Yeah. Yeah. Usually happens when I put my mask on.
0: I don't know what that is. Maybe it's the vision thing.
1: Or an oxygen
0: thing. Or an oxygen thing, I don't know. I, I think it might be a vision thing. So the mask, I can see the mask. And maybe that makes maybe that makes me a bit more dizzy. I don't know. Anyway, that remains and it's really annoying because you know you get those symptoms that come and go. And uh, you don't notice that they're gone until they come back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you realise, oh yeah, oh.
0: I, didn't, I didn't have those for a while and it was great, but I had something else at that time, so I was worrying about that and not this. And then the thing that you were worrying about goes away and then something else comes along. (laughs) Welcome to long COVID, basically. (laughs) How about you, love? How are you?
1: Uh, I've really not had a good two weeks. Um, I've just had sort of every other day had the migraines. I get the shakes after doing any kind of physical exertion. I, yeah, it's it's not been fun, really. Um, and it's just knocked me a bit because I did have those ten days where I felt okay. So, do you think something triggered it, or do you feel like there was a you know virus or an allergy to something that may have? No, don't think so. Don't think so. I, I think it was just that feeling, feeling good, and so I, I really, I've really, really been restrained in my going to the gym or or anything like that but I think it's just that kind of like stepping up of normal life and thinking that you can do certain things and I mean I am quite careful a lot of the time about predominantly just being at home and staying sitting down and when I do that then I'm all right it's that pacing isn't it
0: Mm.
1: Uh, if I have a day where I've run here there and I even did a couple of social events not doing any more don't worry (laughs) <laughs> um but a couple of social socializing and I think it just knocked me I think it was just too I don't know too much I keep getting told to
0: just just rest just rest and you'll feel better but I'm like yeah but I've got a family I've yeah. got things to do and like if I can't do them like if I'm just sitting down what type of life is that
1: yeah you know yeah and that's why I always have the highs and lows because yeah. otherwise what the what is the point if you're just sitting there all the time not doing anything, not engaging with people. So this week's guest, we uh, spoke to an ENT surgeon, Mr. Francis Vaz, because we just wanted to get a little more information on some of the specific symptoms and how they might be treated or how we might be able to at least manage them. Yes. What I've found
0: over the past year is that so many doctors are so pigeonholed in their specialty that when you try and broaden the conversation to, okay, actually what's causing this? They're unable to help you, but they can say to you, okay, well, I can have a look down your nose and see if there's anything in there. If there's nothing in there, you're good. And it's
1: that treating by, by some kind of reassurance, <laughs> which to a degree is helpful, um, still doesn't get to the bottom of what our problem is. But if we can at least try and manage certain things day to day or or be told that, yeah, this is this is a symptom, but it's not going to kill you. So many of our symptoms
0: are ENT. So it was very it was useful to
1: have this conversation with Frances. What are the main things that you are seeing come to you as a result of, of long COVID?
2: Um, I think specifically, um, I I, I am an ENT surgeon. I see all sorts of things with ears, noses and throats, but I have a specialist interest in throat-based things. So I see a lot of change in voice. I see a lot of tension in the throat. I see a lot of mild swallowing problems um, that will have come through as a result of COVID, after COVID. Um, I, however, also see quite a lot of um, a lack of sense of smell, anosmia. Um, I see quite a bit of tinnitus that's certainly been on the increase uh, from a um, ENT symptomatology perspective. So you see a, a mix and a match of things that definitely has been driven by COVID. I'm sure.
1: Is that a picture that you see in other post viral situations?
2: Yes, you do, but the magnitude and the numbers of people that have been infected with COVID-19 uh, are so significant that I think we're seeing the drive of these other symptoms coming post-virally. And, and so there are just so many more of them, and some of them much more intense at times, that push people to be seen for a consultation, some advice and some reassurance.
0: Francis, the patients that you see with issues in their throat um Is that mostly from people who had traumatic hospital stays where they were intubated or they had things put down their throat to help them breathe? No,
2: no, no, not necessarily, in fact. Or eat. No, no, actually, quite interestingly enough, um, um, uh, I probably have seen only a few people um, post-intubation, you know, from that first wave where we had a large number of things. And there were problems, I'm not doubting that, as there always are post-intubation in fact, I think a lot of people, are, you know, ended up with voice and swallowing issues um, uh, after being infected with COVID, but were never intubated or anything like that. And you see quite a lot of that in one's practice.
1: So what's the driver for that? What, I mean, what do you think that mechanism is?
2: I think that's multifactorial. I think occasionally there is a true problem with the larynx, and that's why um, I have the facilities to look at people's voice boxes in the clinic and i can check and see is there an, an abnormality that's happened but there are other things that 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 drive a change in voice as well um because your voice is produced by um the ballast that drives the the voice that's your lungs uh, um, the vibratory source that's your vocal cords and then things that shape the words that we 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 create um in your upper area digestive tract. And all of those could possibly be affected by COVID. The most obvious being the respiratory drive can be changed. And of course, if you don't have as much puff as you did pre-COVID, that, that is harder to project your voice, etc., uh, et cetera. Um, obviously, if there is a laryngeal abnormality because of chronic coughing um, irritation to the vocal cords there 's an element that you can work on there, and of course, sometimes there is tension that you can actually physically see when you do what, what, what I call a fiber optic nasendoscopy. and um, whilst there 's not anything surgically to be done with that you can you can use speech and language therapy to Help drive patients back to using their voice box in the correct fashion by exercises, um, and to get their voices uh, improved um, along the way.
1: So, this, is this almost like a stress response in the body?
2: Yes, some of it is, and we see this separate from COVID infections as well. There are, you know, there are tensions that can develop for a multitude of different reasons, um, and sometimes we don't even know why. Um, but, but it can display itself with a with a change in voice because of us not using the rather complex apparatus um, and the muscles that drive voice. As I say, it's not necessarily surgically needed to be treated um, because there is function in the voice box, but it's just um, slight dysfunction of that uh, voice box that just needs to be corrected.
1: Are there places to which you could point our listeners if they? Feel like they could use some resources in in, in that area
2: I think there 's no doubt about it. If you feel that the drive is very much respiratory, um, uh, I think you 've already talked to respiratory physiotherapists and um, of course respiratory physicians with regards to maximizing their chest symptoms. I think if they 've been seen by an ENT surgeon and there is tension in the voice box, then a good speech and language therapist is 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 a sensible point of contact. Um, and there are lots that do that, uh, both privately and also within the NHS, um, that can be accessed. Um, and they can be a, a lifeline to people. I'd always say to people, however, just just address your own vocal hygiene as well. That means lots of hydration, two litres of water a day. Be sure that you're not drinking too much caffeine and drying up your upper digestive tract. I'd say to people, um, make sure you steam well uh, morning and evening for 10 minutes uh, and not to overuse your voice uh, in stressful situations, because those are also part of that getting your voice back to normal.
0: I'm interested um, in the swallowing, because in my, the early part of my onset of long COVID, this is very odd because it was always in the car, that I couldn't swallow. Yeah, I remember you. You remember? That. Yeah, I couldn't. I would like, it's like I'd forgotten how to swallow and I would have to like really concentrate to be able to swallow it didn't panic me, but it was something that I I noticed. Um, it wasn't all the time, but I, I mentioned it right at the beginning of our, when we first started doing the show that that was one of my symptoms. It's gone now.
2: Yeah, I, I wonder if what you were you were struggling with was something that we referred to as a as a globus sensation, like there's a a sudden lump or a, an odd feeling um, when you were swallowing. Is that what you were describing? Because I've certainly seen a lot of people doing that.
0: Yeah, no, I just it was like I couldn't swallow. It was like, you know, when you swallow all the time, you kind of, you're just... It's natural. Naturally, you can, salivating or just taking a a swallow. I was unable to.
2: Uh, And yet your saliva went down okay, I'm assuming. Yeah, no, no, it did.
0: Eventually, when when I, it was like I had an extremely dry throat, couldn't swallow. I'd have to really concentrate. And it would last a minute or two, and then I'd be able to get on with my day.
2: That's not typical of what i would see um as i say very often i would see people who complain of a lump like sensation and it's not there all the time and it does come and go a bit like you're describing seems odd that it was in the car I (laughs) I i don't understand why the car brought it in unless you know it's a positional thing as well um but but certainly people are having odd swallowing phenomenon and i think that it is related to a degree of tension in the muscle musculature that You know, they literally feel like there's something unusual that's there. And, of course, persistent symptoms like that always need investigation – um, but it certainly uh, sounded like it is a very post-viral phenomenon because, it, you know, it has gone with time by the sounds of it for you.
1: Yes, it has. Do you see anything on investigation? Is it possible for you to see those kind of things, it, the, the lumps or that people have described? So
2: actually, the benefit almost of investigations is to show the patient that actually the mechanism is working um, and that there is no sinister cause and i think quite a lot of the ent symptomatology quite often a little bit of investigation is helping pointing people to say well no we do know that at this point in time that something is working well that there's no frank obstruction there um and um you know it is very likely to continue to get better as happened with you actually uh to be honest with you you know so so i think that that's that's a nice thing to be able to reassure the patients that functionally things are working okay. Intermittently, it's problematic.
0: It's a bit like we've heard before that therapeutic MRIs. You know, it's this idea that yeah,
2: there is. I mean, you know, you don't want to be over investigating patients, and I I do agree. And 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 sometimes a good description to a patient, a good examination is is plenty enough you don't want to over investigate patients because that can add an, a dimension of concern to them as well
1: but to some degree it's a reassurance that is actually really helpful um i ha- i have always said that i have what feels like a constriction in my throat it feels like my throat is shutting down have you seen that
2: definitely and, and i think that fits very much more to that sort of globus sensation the tightness that does exist and and I think we've seen this before pre covid you know and we'd see a lot of patients who do have um a, a sense of something tightening in their throat now of course that 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 thankfully is very unusual for it to be anything of any sinister nature but it's annoying to patients and again A good examination, a good explanation of tightening of musculature, of asking people to hydrate plentifully, um, trying not to cough and throat clear where where the throat becomes tighter um, when you're throat clearing and coughing. Um, You know, it all helps that upper esophageal sphincter. But actually, the stressful time that people have had um, with COVID and post-COVID adds to that heightened element of muscular tension and i often describe it to patients as if you've had a busy day at work you often come back and the top of your shoulders are very tight and in a similar way um you know you can sense that that upper esophageal sphincter in the, the top part of the throat just gets a fraction tighter but at other times it's fine a lot of people have that sort of symptom
0: a big one is obviously the the loss of sense of taste and smell yeah, it was obviously listed as a main symptom of COVID, and it persists in people with long COVID. Could you describe to us what the mechanism is and what's exactly going on there?
2: You're absolutely right. <laughs> I think almost one in four people, you know, present with a sense of a loss of sense of smell. Um, it's almost pathognomic, isn't it, at the present time in the pandemic that we're living in? Um, so it is significant and. Luckily, the vast majority of patients, it does return literally within days to weeks.
1: Uh, Of the acute phase?
2: Of the acute phase, yeah. But there is a cohort, there's no doubt about it, who have persistent um, lack of sense of smell, anosmia. And with that also goes its effect hand in hand with taste, uh, because they are intimately related um, realistically. Um, But we really think that smell is the thing that's significantly altered. Um, because the upper respiratory tract is clearly affected and and I think the thought the thought process really is it 's the support cells of the of the nerves that um, uh, detect odors and smells that um are damaged um, and hopefully uh, come back to normality, but not always and so some patients are left with a persistent uh, lack of sense of smell and for those that haven't ever suffered with it, it's people think, oh, it's only a lack of sense of smell, but it, it is quite imposing to a patient's life. And, and uh, it's been around for ages, the idea of anosmia, but just because of the volume of patients that have st- suffered with COVID-19, I think we're seeing a hell of a lot more of it um, in the clinics uh, of people struggling with some long-term anosmia.
1: Do you have a, a strategy for... For treatment or um, coping with it?
2: I sort of look at them up front uh, as always because I think you've also got to remember that there are, there are non-COVID reasons for having uh, a lack of sense of smell uh, for example if you've got quite an inflamed nose if you've got polyps in your nose and some unusual causes as well that you do slightly investigate for um, but a lot of the COVID patients will tell you this has happened and it's happened after I've had COVID-19. So it's very reassuring. Um, but I typically look at those patients, I take their story, and then I'll examine them with what what I referred to earlier on as a nasal endoscope. And I look in their nose to see if there's no obvious obstruction. Um, I think a lot of these patients really um i like to direct them uh to some por- some supportive information that's very sensible i think and there's a fabulous website out there called fifthsense.org.uk it's it's a super website and it talks about anosmia the lack of sense of smell it talks about strategies that um people can use and must persist with um to try and reconnect Um, The smells that they've had in the past um, in the form of smell retraining, using essential oils, uh, a mix of them, a variety, and using them on a regular basis to try and rekindle um, the smell that you know of, let's say, oranges or lavender uh, or roses um, to a smell that is somewhere there in your memory. And, And it's been pre covid uh, proven to be very effective, and I think has shown some great benefit to patients um, post COVID. Um, you know, so so I, I strongly recommend them to touch base with that website and think about a smell retraining program for themselves.
1: That sounds like it's mainly using nice smells that you sort of want to smell, yes. not not yeah. just super strong smells.
2: No, they, they, they are distinctive smells on average. But actually any distinctive smell is, is is of some benefit because it's 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 triggering thought processes in your brain as well and and putting the two together so
0: what's going on in the in the long haulers who uh, who are describing like a, a constant sense of burning or one of one of um, the people I've spoken to says they have a constant smell of a dead mouse
2: yeah there are there are people who suffer unfortunately with true cacosmia, which is that ugly sort of really not pleasant smells and and again that's existed beforehand as well and you do you know again it's a little bit about examining them investigating them but there are a small portion of patients who definitely do have that um and and again i do think it's important still to try and recalibrate the smell mechanism um, uh, and uh, still to use smells that you know what they should smell off um, because you're being driven to unusual alterations in odorant molecules that are coming and hitting your olfaction or your nasal uh, receptors for smell. Um, and you're just getting a slightly altered sensation and um and it's trying to recalibrate that to something that you know does exist because you know these smells and trying to get them back to something that's not so unpleasant but there is a small proportion of patients most people i think are struggling with frank lack of smell but there's a smaller percentage of people who just have a rather uncomfortable unpleasant smell that can be
0: so these cells that are damaged in the in the nose or the nasal area, are they damaged for good? Obviously, a lot of people get their sense of smell back. Is that them healing naturally over time, or?
2: Yes, I think that's the benefit of the supporting cells um, uh, healing with a with a degree of time and that recuperation. But of course, you know, if things persist, you do wonder whether or not um, that actually the true nerve uh, damage could have been incurred. And we see this elsewhere in the body, that sometimes after an upper respiratory tract infection, you can get even damage to different nerves in the body that suddenly become dysfunctional. And that can lead to a permanent sort of situation where things do not resolve. Um, uh, But I would reiterate to people that, that actually it's still always worthwhile persisting with trying the smell retraining because there is something in our minds that we do remember of good things and good smells and if there's a chance of getting it back to some degree of normality a complete degree of normality it's worthwhile persisting
0: yeah emily you suffer a lot with tinnitus yeah
1: um the the ear bits for me are um quite close to home i've had a a lot of tinnitus uh it wasn't so much in the early stages but in the last year or so um I've had a lot of tinnitus and also um I don't know if this is related but a, a sort of it's like the sound is being squashed in my ears at times it's it feels like somehow my eardrums are compressed it's like I don't know the sound is being squeezed through can you explain these sort of symptoms that people are experiencing and? and whether there is one mechanism driving those things or whether it's a multitude.
2: There's no doubt about it that tinnitus referrals um, have escalated post-COVID-19. And in part, that may well be because of COVID-19 affecting patients like yourself. Um, but in part also, it may well be associated with The stresses and and anxieties that the whole population has had because the pandemic has affected everyone Um, and uh, tinnitus is an exceptionally common symptom most people will experience tinnitus at some point in their lives but it's when it's sort of a persistent issue that it starts to gnaw at people a little bit and certainly anxieties and concerns can escalate tinnitus problems and that's very well documented. Um, So, you know, as I say, it might not be a patient who suffered with COVID-19, but has just lived through the pandemic like we all have. And that degree of anxiety has certainly um, escalated symptoms of tinnitus in a patient um, who otherwise has not had um, problems before. Is there ever a physical driver of it? So I think that the fact that if you've suffered with Covid nineteen you are you and, and are suffering with long covid there's no doubt about it that you're exhausted a lot of the time there are added stresses in your life, but it's that that changes that setting by which we sort of hear tinnitus that that can make that tinnitus more imposing in your life. I've got to say you know hearing loss following covid nineteen infection it, it, I haven't necessarily seen a massive increase myself, but we do know of post-viral um, uh, hearing losses. Um, and, and, of course, if you do lose hearing, in a, that, in addition, can increase um, the amount of tinnitus that you hear. Um, so, so absolutely, there can be a physical driver for it, but, but um, very often it's the emotional or the stress-related uh, effects that... Uh, either long COVID or the effect of COVID as a pandemic has had on people that is driving more tinnitus um, uh, to trouble patients.
1: And is that the same with uh, hearing alterations, as in like the idea that the the sound has changed or sometimes I'm so sound sensitive? A lot of the time I can't seem to hear necessarily what my husband says. I think that might be, uh, you know... No. <laughs> but yeah. but um but i'm really noise sensitive with with then the kind of weird squash sound as well is this all is this all psychologically driven
2: um no do you know look it's very hard to be absolutely sure it it's, it's an unusual symptom that you're describing there if i'm being honest with you. enemy it's not um it's not clear cut you wonder whether or not you know your middle ear pressures are spot on um you wonder whether or not um yes your hearing might have been affected okay um and you know the only way of 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 knowing for sure is by by testing your hearing um and interrogating it um and it, it may come back as being absolutely normal um and people people still get um unusual pressure like sensations in their ears Um, sometimes related to their eustachian tubes. um, And it has been an upper respiratory tract-based pathology. And the eustachian tube is the connection from your upper respiratory tract to your middle ear um, sort of cleft. So, you know, people can experience odd sensations in their ears um, as a result of an infection, um, uh, most certainly, uh, and including COVID-19.
1: What about Noreen's odd ear sensation? What have you got? I was just going to say, can it happen in one ear?
2: So it can happen. It, all symptoms can happen in one ear. Um, what What did you have?
0: So I had, and this is before I realised I had was diagnosed with long COVID, I had a, a sensation of something crawling around inside my ear. And so I actually went to the GP and I said, please look inside my ear. I think maybe this is a spider or something. It was... Again, it's a symptom that has gone but comes back when I'm unwell. But it was a definite, constant, creepy-crawly feeling in my in my right ear.
2: Well, that's odd. I've got to say I haven't got an answer for you. I mean, it sounds very um, nerve-related, but like, it's not necessarily specifically related to your hearing. It's not necessarily specifically related to your tympanic membrane, your eardrum. Um, it doesn't sound really like the pressure-like phenomenon that you get sometimes with eustachian tube dysfunction. Um, I can't put my hand on that one. I scratch my head with that one. Are you, you know, truly, I've got to be honest with you. I, I don't have the answer for that one. Um, and When the GP left, everything was wrong.
0: It was only every one on ear. Uh, she said it was slightly inflamed, the eardrum. But uh, we never got to the bottom of it.
2: And no wax or anything unusual. But no. funny enough, sometimes a piece of wax is just as irritating as a um, something crawling around if it's just the wrong size or something. No. So it's, it, it, it's really hard to know exactly what was going on there.
1: And it's not something you've heard of otherwise?
2: No, no. It's so I'm
1: unique, Nori. I know, I am. I'm very
0: unique. It, it lasted a few months, uh, I'd say, until the middle of the summer, Emily. And then it yeah, it's of, a bit odd. Yeah.
2: There's a little bit of an unusual condition um, related to skin feelings of creepy-crawly sensations, actually, it's, and it's a bit of a, a weird thing. Um, but, but I, you know, I don't often hear of that sort of symptom in general.
0: I tend to think maybe it was some nerve damage
2: or something. Yeah, it does make you wonder, was it nerve sensitivity? And, and your ear canal's rich with, you know, a nerve sensory supply, it's true to say.
1: Interesting. Now, what about something that really seems to have affected both of us throughout all of this? And this could be neurological, but talk to us about vestibular disorders, potentially being physical crystals in the ear rather than being uh, neurologically driven. Can you talk to us about dizziness, balance?
2: So what I would say, um, the crystals bit um, is a different entity. OK. okay.
1: That kind of uh, driver is completely unrelated to this post-viral um, dizziness. I think
2: so. I think so. But there's no doubt about it that, that viral infections can cause balance issues. And we do see um, uh, an acute labyrinthitis or vestibular neuronitis um, Um, where that inflammation in the balance mechanism or the nerve of balance can cause quite a significant um, initial imbalance uh, in patients. Um, Now, of course, uh, you know, that can make people quite unsteady and quite unwell, typically um, for a short time. Um, uh, And when I say short, I'm talking about a week or so, And patients are often treated acutely with anti-sickness medications. Um, But um, they shouldn't be on those medications for too long. And they should start trying to recalibrate um, their brain and their balance mechanism as quickly as possible uh, and as safely as possible um, to get back to as much of normality as possible. And most people do do that if they are reasonably young fit and healthy Um, there are specific vestibular rehabilitation programs that you can put people on there are specific types of exercises that people can look up called Cooksey Cawthorn exercises and these are all challenges that you're going to offer your brain to recalibrate but that is possible to offer uh, rehabilitation for patients um, after Vestibular insults uh, after uh, COVID nineteen infections or any viral infection. To be fair,
1: and what what is that? What has taken place in the, the acute stage of the virus to cause that vestibular injury or vestibular change?
2: It's caused an inflammatory process within the vestibular mechanism um, uh, or the vestibular nerve itself, and as a result, it's, co- it's caused an imbalance between the two sides of uh of the uh brain and the inner ear um and as a result you're used to if you liken it to a aeroplane um with two engines on it if you lose one of the engines the plane will tilt to one side and it's the pilot that sort of gets that back to normal but but might have to slightly compensate um a little bit before they get you back to the sort of level um, uh, that they need to maintain you on, um, you might get some regeneration and uh, return to normal of the function on that year, um, uh, after the inflammation. Um, but you might have to reset and recalibrate, and that's what all of the exercises afterwards uh, are focused upon.
1: Okay, it's quite. That, I like that analogy.
2: It's not perfect, but it's it's a good one for patients to understand. Um, you know, you've got two vestibular mechanisms on e- one on either side of your ear, and if if one goes, it sort of it, it sort of makes them understand that a little bit more s- straightforwardly.
0: So time and time again, we 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 talk about inflammation in the body I and mean, long COVID being a multi-organ, multi-system injury basically. Do you, um, as you're specialising in the ear, nose and throat, and all three seem to be affected by long COVID? Do you think that if we were to address it at a more systemic level, like to treat this underlying inflammation in the body, that that would help with all our symptoms?
2: Yeah, I, you know, it's very hard because obviously I come from a very niche speciality. And, it, you know, I uh, I hate to give advice about that because, you know, I think that falls into my general Uh, physician colleagues because they're looking at a very much more global picture and it's why we have general physicians overseeing quite a large amount of long COVID care because they're thinking about you know a lot of the patient rather than um, an ENT surgeon who looks at a small part of a patient but quite a commonly placed symptomatology um, as as, as you both have pointed out to me (laughs) and struggled with at times. Um, So I think, you know, you are right. I think it is important to think of it as a global picture. Um, But I think that almost certainly has to be led um, by um, colleagues that are looking after the global picture of a patient. But I imagine that a lot of symptoms will improve, you know, when you're looking at that global picture and improving bit by bit by bit, um, uh, slowly but surely.
0: That's interesting. It makes
2: sense medically, doesn't it?
0: It does, it does. I mean, a lot of the advice that we've been given personally is, you know, let's, for me, calm down your cardiac symptoms and gives you a chance for your body to reset and hopefully then recover. Um, and I, I think it's, you're talking about basically doing the same thing for your ears and your nose and
1: your throat yeah it's that symptomatic treatment because at the moment that's kind of the only answers that we have so it's treating the various symptoms in the hope that for example stop stopping your tinnitus might help you sleep better which might then drive uh recovery and with your cardiac symptoms that's really been the thing hasn't it it's about trying to aid your holistic health
2: in some way and I think you're right. You know, it is. It, it's also allows you to focus on something, allows you to try and improve that area, and in so alleviating it, it reduces the consequence of something. I totally agree. And you know, uh, as I say, stress is a real trigger for something like tinnitus. And actually, um, each different system that you address will reduce a degree of stress in your lives or a long COVID sufferers lives and and actually will have an impact on other elements of their long covid situation
1: i mean we don't want to be told that it's all in our heads um but it <laughs> but it's quite interesting this the way this conversation has developed about how much of it is all sort of the impact of of all of it that each thing has on the next thing as well
2: yeah yeah and, and there are definitely, well, certainly within that ENT spectrum, it's it's fascinating, and it's nice to see that there are definite things that people can do to make that bit better. But I think the effect it then has on another thing is 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 definitely further or additional benefit that can be gained.
0: Have you had much success with some of your long COVID patients?
2: Yeah, I think I think a lot of people when they've had uh, the reassurance when they're shown the inside of their throat when they do take the effort with the smell retraining, um, there is benefit to be had um, from those things. The the, the smell retraining takes time. Um, It's not quick. I think some of the reassurance that I can give a patient for their throat symptoms by visually looking at a screen and saying, look, this is your vocal cords. These, These are working well. There's a slight degree of tension here, and this is what we can do with it. That direction... Um, and pointing out to them is is nice and the reassurance that there's nothing sinister there is also very helpful to them as well um, because one of the things of unfortunately COVID-19 is that people haven't been presenting to doctors and um, uh, and and uh, sadly um, other diagnoses are being missed and um, people get anxious about that you know do I have a something nasty in my throat that I've been ignoring a little bit and I'm finally coming to see you um Francis it's uh, that reassurance is, is is quite important to patients at the moment
1: I think I did come away from the conversation feeling slightly like oh so there there is the suggestion that more of these things are in your head but he does actually say that there is a mechanical driver for certain of these things. And then certain tendencies get exacerbated by stress and anxiety. So it's not all in your heads. Although the ENT area is very much your head. Your head yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think I came away with, with just a reinforcement of this idea that doctors don't have all the answers. And that You know, as individuals who spend a lot of time talking to people and researching on our own this particular post-viral illness, we sometimes have a greater understanding of what's going on in in the whole of our bodies than a doctor who's just looking at one particular part.
1: And we're just helping everyone join it up. I
0: know. (laughs) Yeah, but I do feel like we, we don't always get the answer from the doctor that we're hoping for.
1: I think that's because that the answer that we're wanting from a doctor, from any doctor we speak to, is we know how to cure you. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.